Hi there, and welcome to the Alpine Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Prescott, a former naval submarine officer turned software engineer and adventurer here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I found fun, fitness, and fulfillment in the outdoors, and so can you. Whether you've never hiked a day in your life or you're a bona fide peak bagger, my guests will inspire, educate, and entertain you. So turn the volume up, drop that phone in your pocket, settle in, and let's get to it. Hey everybody, Travis here, the Alpine Geek. Wow, it has been a while, a very long while. Years to be accurate. (laughs) I can tell you I have definitely been geeking out in the Alpine since my last episode back in, I think, 2020. Um, I've become a climb leader for the Mountaineers, completed some of my original goal lists, the Snoqualmie 20 and the Tianaway 20, currently working on the Smoots list and the Rainier 100. So what prompted me to come out of my early podcasting retirement? Well, I mean, for one, I've been wanting to get back to this anyways, but I've just been crazy busy. But ultimately, what drove me back to the mic was this burning desire to get the word out about a new policy that's coming to Mount Rainier National Park. You may have heard of it. It's called the Nisqually to Paradise Corridor Management Plan, and it's been in the works for several years now, but it is rapidly coming to a head, and you may not like the changes. I know that I, for the most part, do not. Now I'm going to admit that I have a little bit of an agenda here with this episode. My goal is to make you aware and maybe make you just a little bit mad. Mad enough that you go to the website, the Park Service's website, and leave your feedback. And the reason this is so urgent is because you, the public, have only until June 11th to submit your comments before the park makes its final decisions and starts implementing these changes in 2024. So this is your last and best opportunity to speak up. So please do so. Go to the link in the show notes And leave your comments so that the park does not interpret your silence as approval. Now this plan does a bunch of stuff. But at the heart of it, the critical thing is, if the park goes with its preferred solution, they're going to implement a timed entry reservation system for all three vehicle accessible entrances to the park. That's the Nisqually entrance, the White River entrance, and the Stevens Canyon entrance. And you would obtain these permits most likely through recreation.gov. And of course, there'd be a fee. No reservation, no entry. Now, technically this plan has a baseline of do nothing, and then it has three alternatives, but the one I'm primarily going to talk about is the park's stated preferred solution, which incidentally is also the solution that most restricts access to the park. Now, all of their proposals restrict access through the Wright River entrance. But alternatives three and four limit access on the south side only to Paradise. But as I mentioned, their preferred plan would actually limit access through both south side entrances, which would limit access to far more than just Paradise, places like Longmire, Reflection Lake, the Tatouche Range, etc., Now, the park says that this is necessary to reduce the long backups of cars that develop at the entrances during peak visitation in the summertime and to limit overcrowding of people inside the park. 
So the reservation system would let you get past the entrance, at which point you could stay as long as you want. Now, they also make clear that if you already have a reservation within the corridor, such as a reservation at the Paradise Inn or Cougar Rock Campground or a backcountry permit, you would not also be required to get a timed entry reservation. But what if you wanted to try and obtain a walk-up permit? Well, you'd need to get a timed entry reservation for that because the Wilderness Information Centers are past the entry gates. Very convenient. So what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Let's get specific. Well, the system would operate during, quote, peak summer hours, which they sketch out as roughly Memorial Day through Labor Day, Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you arrive outside that window, either earlier or later, you don't need a reservation. The cost of the reservation is going to be somewhere between 2 and $6, and it's guaranteed that some or all of that will be non-refundable. That's just how Recreation.gov works. In my head, it is a $6 non-refundable fee because that's the non-refundable reservation fee for Mount St. Helens, and that's also how much all of those stupid lotteries cost that you no doubt enter and never win. Now, to the park's credit, they did do a good job identifying some of the bad things about this proposal, namely that it adversely impacts the ability of people to secure a walk-up permit, that many will simply not be willing to deal with the hassle of the reservation system and will just go elsewhere where there's less red tape, and that it will disproportionately affect underserved communities that now need to pay a fee, have reliable internet access, and have the time to actively plan a trip, barriers which do not exist today. And while they identify these adverse effects, they don't actually offer any solutions. They just sort of assert that the improvements to quote-unquote visitor experience will be worth it in the long run. Now that's interesting because I have to wonder what kind of definition they have internally of what visitor experience means. If you've ever tried to secure an enchantments permit on recreation.gov, what was your visitor experience like? Did you enjoy giving your non-refundable $6 so that you could eagerly await that form letter in your inbox that read, the lottery drawing recently took place and unfortunately your application wasn't selected for a permit? Did you then enjoy getting up early on April 1st, which, by the way, is a hilarious date, to release their, quote, second chance permits, only to refresh the browser at 9 a.m. and watch as anything that was available disappears in the blink of an eye. Because to me, those things are all part of visitor experience and not a good visitor experience. But when I read their proposal, I don't think that they consider those visitor experience in the park's definition that your experience only starts when you pass the park entrance, or at least as you're driving up to the park entrance. If you can't visit, or you choose not to visit because the system's too cumbersome, well, then they just don't care about that. That's not part of visitor experience. Now, here's something that really annoys me about this plan, and maybe it's because I'm just a little bit too cynical. But for all this talk about visitor experience... What they don't talk about is money. 
Now, the primary reason to introduce a timed reservation system is money. And they don't really have to state that for it to be patently obvious. By their own admission, the days that experience the kind of congestion that needs management are sunny summer days. If you're coming at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday, or you're coming in at a, on, on a socked-in day or a rainy day, you're not going to experience congestion, but you are going to need a timed entry reservation. It's crazy to me that despite having worked on this plan for at least three years, and despite the fact that all of these alternatives are suggesting this timed entry reservation system, that they couldn't be bothered to come up with the price that the reservations would cost, or they couldn't be bothered to project how much revenue this would generate for the park. And they probably didn't do this because it's not a good look. But it's obviously one of their goals, and you know what? Frankly, I don't blame them. These are the parks that we love, and I don't have any problem with the maintenance of said parks being funded by the people who visit them. And personally, I think that makes a lot more sense than just making all taxpayers pay for it, including those who may never visit. But just be honest about it. Just admit that, yeah, bringing in millions of dollars in revenue each year wouldn't hurt. I mean... They already say, hey, if you have a reservation inside the park for camping or climbing, you don't need a timed entry reservation. But of course not. They're not going to risk losing your $50 camping reservation to try and squeeze out six more dollars. At least, not yet. But you know that they want to. They just think it would be too much too soon. But what they betrayed in their report by making that statement is that if you already plan to give them a bunch of money, then they're not going to burden you with some timed reservation requirement. Now, there's an interesting section in the Frequently Asked Questions where it asks, hey, will locals get priority access to the park? Meaning the people who own homes or vacation homes in the area. Now, I imagine there's probably people that purchase their homes specifically for frequent convenient access to Mount Rainier National Park. I mean, you need some kind of trade-off, considering that your investment's going to be wiped out when it decides to finally erupt. But the Park Service's response is that fees must be collected fairly and equitably, and that for these reasons, we believe the best way to achieve this is to provide all potential visitors with the same opportunities for access. So in other words, no. Unless, of course, you're already giving them a bunch of money for camping or climbing reservations. But isn't that already creating different classes of visitors? And don't they already do that every day by selling a seven-day entry fee alongside an annual fee? And in fact, doesn't every recreational pass in Washington State already do that, whether public or private? And on that note, so if you have a reservation inside the park, you don't need a timed entry reservation. But what the proposal doesn't do is extend that preferential treatment uh, to those that have lodging reservations outside the park in the lodges and the cabins and the Airbnbs and so forth in the border towns like Ashford and Elby. Nope. Presumably those suckers are just going to need to get their timed entry reservations every day that they plan to visit. So you better hope that cabin has good Wi-Fi. I can't imagine that local businesses could be happy about this. Um, Although the report tries to spin this in a positive way, suggesting that people will spend more time in these gateway towns. 
presumably waiting for their timed reservation window. Um, but I'm not so sure that the reality will be quite that rosy. Now here is really the, the crux of what irritates me about this proposal. Um, I find it is useful to consider that there's basically two kinds of visitors to Mount Rainier. There are those of us that love this mountain and recreate there several times a year. And then there are those of us who love this mountain, but only visit it infrequently, say once a year or less. I've been coming to Mount Rainier National Park since 2018, and I've only sat in a long line at the entrance one time when I tried to meet my group at sunrise at 9 a.m. I wanted to be a little lazy, but otherwise, I, just like pretty much everyone else I know, know to arrive early to beat the crowds. And that's not unique to Mount Rainier. That is anywhere you go in Washington State. The people who recreate at Mount Rainier the most already know when not to come, which suggests that the cause of these long lines and crowding are the people who visit infrequently. Now, that could be local families, that could be out-of-state visitors who just don't know any better. They think they can wake up at 9 a.m. and get here at 11, and, well, yeah, them and a thousand other people who had the same great idea. And I'm sure they're sitting in their cars, stuck in traffic, thinking, oh, I'm an idiot, I should have known better. Sure, hindsight's 2020, and they don't visit the park all the time. It's forgivable that they would make that mistake. If you're taking your annual family vacation to Mount Rainier, you can be forgiven for not stuffing your family in the car at 5 in the morning to beat the crowds. But the point is that the frequent visitors are almost certainly not the ones causing these problems because they already know that congestion sucks and they already know how to avoid it. But nowhere in this 200-page-plus proposal that was developed over three years does the Park Service offer any data or even estimates comparing how many people are frequent versus infrequent visitors. And it should be a pretty simple matter of counting how many people purchase the one-time pass versus an annual pass, or a national parks pass. I mean, even anecdotal information here would be useful. And I suspect that the percentage of frequent repeat visitors is small compared to the number of infrequent visitors. And I would bet money that it's overwhelmingly those infrequent visitors that are causing the bulk of these problems. Just like it's infrequent visitors who are more likely to trample the meadows to take their selfies or throw their banana peel in the dirt because it's biodegradable and bring their dogs on a hike even though they're pretty much forbidden in the national parks. It's an education thing. They don't go and do this thing every day, so there's a lot that they don't know. But the Park Service just treats everyone the same, they're all the same problem, except, of course, as I've already mentioned, the ones that are already shelling out money for reservations for climbing and backpacking in lodges. Now, some of you might just say, hey, I'm just going to trust the park because you know, they're the ones that are looking out for our best interests. And sure, that's a reasonable viewpoint. But for me, and I know I'm not alone here, I have a hard time just trusting the park service on this because this is the park service that cut winter recreation access by over 70 percent last year this is the park that is deliberately pushing the plan that restricts access the most i think we're a little bit justified in being skeptical
They held a public meeting a few weeks ago via Teams to, quote, address concerns. Now, first of all, they spent 20 minutes trying to get that meeting to even start. But also in that meeting, where they had the opportunity to be transparent, they avoided transparency. Now, for those of you who don't know, I work at Microsoft. And as you may have heard, like other tech companies, we have had some layoffs as of late. And one of the things that happened oh, about a month ago was we had an all-hands meeting where the head of our division um, was there to answer our questions. And what I appreciated about that meeting was that any question that somebody asked was visible for everyone to see. And everyone could upvote each other's questions. So the leadership didn't really have much choice other than to answer the top-rated questions exactly as they were asked. And I think that showed real character on the part of leadership to do that and to not try and like sugarcoat or downplay people's reactions. Now contrast this with what the Park Service did. At their public comment meeting, once they finally got it running, you could ask questions, but only the moderator could see them. And they got to cherry pick the questions and reward them to their liking. And I know this because they did ask my question, but they rephrased it to be a little more benign. My question was, one of many, how did you decide that 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. represents peak hours? I've never sat in a line at 7 a.m. And they rephrased this as, how did you come up with 7 a.m. to 5 p.m.? It's not egregiously misrepresenting my question, but it definitely is missing the point, which was that their definition of peak hours was quite different from my own. So those are a few of the things that I picked out from this document that I think are, are worrisome or troublesome. And I hope you're a little bit mad right now. And if you are, go to the show notes, click on the link, and go to the comment page and start writing. And while you do that, I'm going to give you my take on what I think are some constructive comments that you can make to the park. And remember, you only have until June 11th of 2023. That is less than one month. Now, fundamentally, I think that the Park Service is trying to make too drastic a change too quickly. And there's simply no reason to do this. For infrequent visitors, I think the timed entry reservation system is going to work. It's going to help them, for lack of a better phrase, save them from themselves. I think it will be effective. However, for frequent visitors to the park, I think this system is unnecessary uh, and burdensome. But fortunately, I think there's a great solution, and it should service both kinds of uh, visitors. All they need to do is sell an annual parking pass that essentially gives you unrestricted, spontaneous access to the park like you have today. And we'd pay for this privilege... So the park would get more money from us than it does today. We wouldn't be burdened with the onerous reservation system. Because right now, the park is proposing going from one extreme, which is unrestricted, unlimited access for everyone at any time, to the other extreme, which is very restricted access for everyone to very specific times. And a season pass would simply establish some reality that falls somewhere in the middle of those extremes. And I suspect that the number of people who would opt to buy the annual parking pass would be small enough 
that it would not diminish the effectiveness of the timed entry system. The pass would be available to all, but as is already the case today, the financial calculus would just logically result in infrequent visitors opting to just get the much cheaper timed reservation. And some other people would calculate how many times would they need to go to the park to make the pass worth it. And they'd make their decision based on that. And then other people, and this would probably include myself, would just happily pay the cost. To me, it's no different than when I buy the super-duper groomed snowpark pass. I just don't care anymore. I just buy it, and I don't want to worry about it. If they have the season pass option, it can't be any worse than it is today, and it will probably be markedly better because I suspect that most visitors, being infrequent visitors, will naturally choose the timed reservation option because it's a lot cheaper. So if you're only going once or twice a year. But if it does turn out that too many people bought a season pass and they still have these problems, they still have the crowding, they still have the congestion, then this gives them a nice elegant way of adjusting. And the simplest thing they can do is just increase the price of the season pass, which will lower demand. They could also do something like have blackout times. So say from 11 to 1, the peak of peak times, where the season pass just wouldn't be honored. That's another option. They could restrict the number of season passes sold each year, which I don't really prefer because I think that would be followed very closely by another stupid $6 lottery. So I don't favor that one. But they could do that. And worst case... They could just phase out the season pass, but the point is that that decision would be data-driven, not some knee-jerk reaction like they're proposing now. And this is not a radical solution. It is a, quote, fair and equitable solution that Mount Rainier already uses today with its entrance fees. Discover Pass, Snow Park, Northwest Forest all do this. Every downhill and cross-country ski resort offers a day use and a season pass. And this is no different than any of those systems. It's not creating a preferential system for locals because the season pass would be available to any and all for whom the cost of the pass outweighs the inconvenience of the timed reservation. So that is my primary ask for the Park Service as they consider... Uh, these changes. The other thing that I think they should absolutely do is extend their reservation exception to include the local lodging outside of the park so that the people staying outside the park are not punished and forced to obtain reservations every day that they want to visit. Essentially, it'd be like parking validation. And I think that's only fair to the businesses in the area, and I think that's only fair to the patrons of those businesses. So there you have it. That's the good, the bad, and the ugly. As I said before, please, please, please follow the link in the show notes. Leave your comments for the Park Service, telling them what you think about their plan. You're certainly welcome to echo and amplify any of my suggestions if you think they have merit, but regardless, make your voice heard. If you're in the Mountaineers, There's also a link in the show notes about a survey that the club is conducting for how these proposed changes would affect you within the context of Mountaineers trips or courses or your personal trips. 
So if you are a member of the Mountaineers, please fill that out as well, because the club will be drafting its own letter to the Park Service as part of its advocacy efforts. And a big kudos to the club, because in years past, they have submitted letters as this process has played out and pushed back against some of these suggestions that would limit access to the park. Now, unfortunately, the Park Service didn't seem to listen, which is why it's important that you add your personal voice to these discussions. And finally, I just want to say, I know in this episode I have not been especially kind toward the Park Service and have not given them a whole lot of benefit of the doubt. But I think it's important to acknowledge that they have drafted this plan with the best of intentions. And so our role is really helping them identify some of the problems that perhaps they can't see and to offer constructive solutions that will help produce better outcomes for everyone. And also, if you want to support our national parks through more than just your park fees, you can donate to the Washington National Parks Fund at wnpf.org, which helps support Washington State's three national parks, Rainier, Olympic, and North Cascades. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, and I can honestly say I'm not sure when that will be, I hope to see you on the trails. You've been listening to the Alpine Geek Podcast with Travis Prescott. Be sure to check us out at www.thealpinegeek.com and don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for listening.